Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, it's kind of short, and I just have two items I'd like to discuss. One will be Disney news and a few things that are happening there. And then the other part is I'm going to talk about the crossroads and pay homage to it. Don't know what the crossroads was? Stay tuned and you'll find out. So starting off talking about Disney news. Disney had their third quarter earnings call recently. So of course, during the earnings call, they talked about all of their revenue streams and everything they've got going on. I think it's safe to say that there's still a lot for the company to figure out at this point what they're going to do. When they talked about the sports and the things related to that, things seem pretty good because the uh, sports landscape is picking up again and there seems to be a lot of interest in it. So they're doing well there. I don't think there's any issues with that. Though, of course, some of the decisions they've made recently with ESPN and some of the ways they focus their shows has really sort of changed the dynamic. They're more sports, sports-oriented and less entertainment-oriented. So it's no longer ESPN, Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. It's now just SPN, it's the Sports Programming Network. They don't do as much entertainment as they used to. It's pretty uh, sports-focused. So I guess that's good for the bottom line in that sense. So, uh, you know, that's fine. Now, one of the things that came out about uh, the media was that uh, Bob Chapek continues to talk about what they're going to do with movies and movie distribution. And he said, we're going to stick with our plan of flexibility. We're still unsure in terms of how the marketplace is going to react when family films come back with the the theatrical windows. And that's the interesting thing. So, you know, with the inability to vaccinate to this point children, you still have that gap of how do you take children to the movie theater. So they planned on continuing to release movies to uh, the theaters when they're the big blockbuster releases. And then they're going to do some things to streaming where it makes sense. But they want to try and release things to theaters because they made that commitment and they want that industry to keep running. There's a lot of money to be made there, so they want to keep things going. So they want to try to figure out what that balance is. And JPEG goes on to say, we're watching very, very carefully different types of movies to see how the different components of the demographics of that market come back. And goes on to say... We're going to do what's best for the shareholders, ultimately. We don't want to announce our films that far in advance, like we used to, because we know we're in a time of flux and change. So again, JPEG went back to the line about what's important is our shareholders. It's not the guests. It's not the people watching the movies. It's not the fans. It's not the people who are going to consume them. It's the shareholders. It's that bottom line. And that's, this is what's different about the company, is just sort of thinking about the shareholders first and how we can maximize profits. And this is what I've been saying for a while about JPEG's leadership style, that that's what's been going on. So I just find that kind of interesting. Now, on the theme park side, they talked about there was a 99% increase in parks revenue compared to quarter four of 2020, which I guess is really not all that unexpected, given that you really had 
limited park attendance, limited park capacity. You hadn't brought back most of your cast members at that point. So you would expect that they would be up a little bit. And that's a kind of an interesting thing. I think that's kind of intriguing. They also said that guest spending increased by almost 30% over the last quarter. And nearly 33% of guests paid $15 per person to upgrade to the Genie Plus services. Interesting. So about a third of the guests are willing to pay that. It's kind of a marker, right? It gives you an indicator of what things are going to look like. But there was another interesting comment made by Christine McCarthy, who's the chief financial officer. Both Chapek and she were asked a question about how they're going to pad their bottom line and what they're going to do to increase revenue. A totally legitimate question from someone who is part of the community that's reporting on this, following the, the company for a long period of time and understands the industry. And McCarthy talked about how they're going to find other ways to increase their bottom line. And she talked about using algorithms to increase profits. Algorithms to increase profits? What, what does that mean exactly? It's kind of a strange way to say something. And again, you're on the earnings call, so you expect some things that have shareholder benefits. So I, I get it, sort of, but it's a weird statement to make. And then she goes on to answer the question in a way where she talks about meals. And she says, quote, we can cut portion size, which is probably good for some people's waistlines. Okay. <laughs> What a strange comment to make. I mean, okay, I get it. You want to increase your profits and you're going to do the little things that happen. You hear about companies all the time doing things and they get a lot of press for it. Some years ago, one of the airlines talked about taking olives off of first-class salads and that would save them X amount of dollars if they didn't have the olives on the salads anymore. Whatever. You know, yeah, that's true, but it's sort of a false savings because there are other things you're, you're doing. But it's kind of a funny thing to say, yeah, we're just going to cut the portion size or potentially maybe change the ingredients or source them differently or whatever they're going to do to try and increase the profit on that particular dish that they're serving. And then talking about being good for people's waistlines, wow. I mean, that's kind of in your face. And I'm not saying that it's not a benefit, but it's a weird thing for a CFO to say on an earnings call that she wants to help people essentially lose weight by having them eat less or offering them less food. It's just kind of strange. And the other problem with that is, if you really look at what Disney serves for some meals, you don't really know what the caloric intake is. They have to provide that if you ask and they'll tell you that, but you don't know how much fat is in it. You don't know the, uh, the calorie counts, those kinds of things. So you really don't know exactly what it is you're eating. So you're eating those chicken nuggets, you know, making it go from five chicken nuggets to four chicken nuggets, you know, you're, you may help, but you're still not necessarily being healthy. So you see the kind of the underlying problem here. It's, it's kind of a weird thing. So, oh, maybe a customer might have to order two because they, you know, they're not filled up on one. Okay, so they'll increase their profits that way. There was also some hints about what they're doing with the Genie Plus service in Lightning Lane. And some people went in and kind of reverse engineered the math on it to figure out that, that it's somewhere around 90% of all of the available space that they have, the capacity they have in some of these Lightning Lane attractions is given to people who are paying for it. So essentially what that means is if you don't pay for it, you've got a very small percentage chance of getting on some of these attractions. So Disney is doing other things to kind of tip the scales in their favor in terms of increasing the profitability. Yeah, they were saying 33% of people were paying for the Genie Plus. It'll be interesting to see how many people wind up paying for the Lightning Lane because they figure out that there's no availability to go on the attractions they want to go on, so they wind up paying for the Lightning Lane individual attractions. Think about that for a minute. Disney just changed the paradigm completely. If you don't pay for it, 
you're not riding it. So if you want to ride Rise of the Resistance, probably the only way you're going to be able to do it is by forking over that extra 15 bucks or so. Kind of crazy, right? Something else I noted, they announced that there was a decrease in the number of people that were subscribing to Disney Plus, the streaming service. And that makes sense. You know, they had a huge peak when people were interested in staying home and streaming and doing more things. And the content, I'll be honest with you, the content on Disney Plus has gotten a lot better. I find myself watching it more because the content is really interesting. There's a lot of compelling stuff on there. There's a lot of Star Wars stuff with The Simpsons on there, uh, with a number of other shows that they've created, some uh, things that they've come up with. Very clever. And it's worth watching a lot of the shows that are there. And I suspect that at some point they'll probably start re-releasing some of their earlier materials too. Some of the things that used to appear in Vault Disney in the middle of the night on the Disney Channel will probably show up on there. Or at least I hope it'll show up on there. So the content is good. And there's a lot of compelling reasons to get it, but people are looking at it and going, well, I can go to the theater and see the film, or I can do this, or I can do that, and I don't need to get Disney+. And so there are a lot of people who are not subscribing to it, so the number of subscribers has dropped off. It's not increasing the way they hoped it would. And they're trying to find ways to figure out what's going on there and get more people interested in it. So that's kind of a little funny thing that's happening in the background. And one of the things that they announced was they're going to have some premier sort of activities that you can do. I believe it was along the lines of actually getting some character interactions, much like you had with the Disney credit card, where you could actually uh, show that you're a member of the Disney Plus streaming service and have access to these things. So they would give you a little more access at the parks if you're a Disney Plus subscriber. I just thought that was kind of interesting that they that they threw that out there. So there you go. That's the story of what's happening around some Disney news that I thought was kind of interesting once they had their earnings call. And now I'd like to turn my attention to the Crossroads. The Crossroads was this area that was across the street from Hotel Plaza Boulevard. Now Hotel Plaza Boulevard is on 535. It's, it's at the end of where Disney Springs is. If you went around past the end of Disney Springs, you could turn right, go up toward the hotels that are along Hotel Plaza Boulevard, and then you would wind up at uh, State Road 535. And the crossroads was directly across the street. So what is the crossroads, or more directly, what was it? Back when Michael Eisner was the CEO of the company, one of his tenants was when he was running the theme parks, he wanted people to stay at the property and stay there and have no reason to leave to go anywhere else. And he wanted people to have longer vacations. He also had the people who were coming in and working on the international program and the people who were there on the college program needed a little bit of an entertainment outlet and needed some things, some basic commodities that they could get. Publix is a huge chain in the state of Florida, but Publix didn't have any locations within several miles of the Walt Disney World Resort. You had to travel fairly far to get to one. You needed a, you needed a car or get a taxi to get to one. So if you wanted groceries while you were staying there or living there as part of the college program or whatever, you had to travel fairly far to get them. So Michael Eisner was thinking about the big picture and thinking about how he could increase sort of this idea of people staying there and giving them something else. So that's where Pleasure Island came from. That's where this idea of this sort of Disney district came from where they had these different things they were trying to do to engage people to stay on Disney property and do some things. But not having the grocery store and also allowing for a few restaurants and shops that were not Disney owned to be on the property was advantageous because of the way he was thinking about the resort. So one of the interesting things you may not real realize about Disney is that over the course of time, they had that 27,000-ish acres of land that they had purchased. And over time, they would buy and sell little acreages around the Walt Disney World Resort to 
reshape the entire area. So they might have a couple of acres up in the northeast corner that they thought they didn't need, and they might sell that and buy something in the southwest corner, or they might expand out, they might keep that and just buy a couple of more acres. You know, small acreage exchanges. And of course, because there were a couple of plots of land that they couldn't get when they originally built the property, at some points those became available and they would purchase them. So there was this little plot of land at the end of 535 that they didn't own. And uh, it's a 36-acre plot, and Disney decided they were going to buy it. And so they bought it in the early 1980s. And in 1988, Michael Eisner thought, let's build this up. Let's, let's put a grocery store in here, and let's put some non-Disney-themed shops in here to give people another place they can go to in walking distance where they won't actually leave our property, and they still have some things that they can get. And they'd also allow for people who were like it, working in the college program and so forth to come over and be able to get some goods there too. So it really was kind of a positive thing. It went along with this whole theme where he was thinking about Pleasure Island and thinking about keeping people there, that it kind of worked to a large degree. So the, the uh, grocery chain that they put there was a Goodings. At the time, Goodings was sort of a moderate-sized grocery chain. I can't tell you what exactly happened if they even approached Publix or Publix talked to them at all. I really don't know. But I would assume that somehow there was a deal that was made with Goodings that was too good to pass on. So the Goodings was there, and that gave them a grocery chain that was right there. And in fact, it turned out to be the last Goodings. The Goodings across the United States had, cl had closed sometime in the early 2000s, but that particular store remained open until about 2018 or 2019, something like that, and was still there in service. And, and they had to source goods themselves because they didn't have the brand and the buying power. And then there were a number of restaurants that popped up there. So this is where the Pizzeria Uno was, there was a Chevy's Mexican, uh, there was a TGI Friday, Sweet Tomatoes, a Perkins, a McDonald's, a Taco Bell. And these were all great places to go if you wanted an inexpensive meal and to leave the parks and to go somewhere and it was within short, a short distance of Disney World. And especially for cast members after work to go over and have a, a little bite to eat and it wasn't very expensive. And it was a kind of a gathering spot for a lot of us too after, after work. There was a number of different places that popped up in there over the years. And, you know, it was interesting that there was this place right there across the street from Disney that had these different things. But it was still owned, the property itself was still owned by Disney. It was really kind of a weird mix of things. And you would never know it by going in there because it was right across the street. You would never suspect that it was actually owned by Disney because there was no Disney shops in there. There was no Disney touches to it, really. Unless you really looked around, like at the fire hydrants and so forth, you could see they said the Walt Disney Company on them kind of a weird thing. And there was a, a miniature golf course that was there, the Pirate's Cove, that was really pretty nice. That was always one of my favorite miniature golf courses in Central Florida. I couldn't even count the number of times that I went there. I probably wound up going there within six months after it opening. And my last golfing there was about a couple of months before it closed. So I was there a lot. It was a really fun golf course. It was well-maintained, wasn't very expensive, and the pirate theme was always kind of fun. My kids wound up loving it because they, through their childhood, we would go there. That would be one of our days at Disney would be going over and enjoying the, uh, the Pirate's Cove Golf and then going over to say Sweet Tomatoes or one of the other restaurants that was there and just kind of enjoying ourselves a little bit and getting away from Disney but not being very far. So sometime in about 2005 or so, Disney decided that this wasn't a valuable property to own anymore. They'd owned it for the better part of 15 years at this point and decided that it was time to move on and sell this off and focus on the theme parks and the things that brought them general revenue. 
Now they were making money off of all the tenants that were there. They were actually uh, collecting some rent basically and had some tax breaks because it was part of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. So it was to their benefit to keep it for a period of time. But at some point they decided that they really didn't want to keep it. So like I said, about 2005 or so, they decided it was time to just go ahead and sell it off. So they sold it to a developer who continued to maintain it exactly as it was. So they maintained it and ran it for another 10 years or so, doing everything they wanted and making it really kind of interesting. And then the city of Orlando and the Florida Department of Transportation came along and said they wanted to improve transit along the I-4 corridor. I-4 is the huge interstate that goes, it goes actually east to west between uh, Daytona and Tampa. But in Orlando, it goes actually north and south and goes through the city of Orlando, downtown, goes down past the Disney parks and continues on. And so it passes by Universal and SeaWorld and then on to Disney. Now you may have noticed, if you've ever driven that route, that it would get really, really congested right around that 535 exit. There's an exit that goes off on the State Road 535. And it would always, traffic would always back up there. It did when I was there 20 years ago, it did until recently. So the Department of Transportation decided it was time to take this on and make a change. And they wanted to increase the size of the exit ramp that would go through there and actually create more traffic flow through there anyway. So it's a whole part of, I think they call it Ultimate Orlando or something like that, that would go along and actually change the nature of the way you, the way you would travel on the interstate. And so the thing they needed was some drainage land. The challenge is when you're building a large interstate, you need places for water to run off to, especially in Florida, because water will pile up on a road. It will rain very heavily for a period of time and there's a lot of water that'll be standing. So the goal is always to let that water run off in some way. And so they need these large retention ponds near exits to let the water run into. And because of the size of the exit and what they're doing there, they actually wanted that 36 acres of land that, that was the crossroads. There was a lot of back and forth negotiations, a lot of things that were happening. Because it was part of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, Disney had already thought through how to do drainage in the area and had already planned for it and built the infrastructure around it. So it was already part of the way to where the Department of Transportation wanted it. So the price of the land was a little bit higher than I think the Department of Transportation was ready to spend. So there was a lot more negotiating that happened there. They went back and forth a fair amount and it took a couple of years to actually come to a number that worked for the developer that now owned that land. Of course, they used eminent domain as their primary focus and they wound up closing all the businesses and telling them, hey, you have until such and such date to move out. But then the pandemic hit and those businesses were allowed to stay for about another two years from what the original date was. It's kind of a funny thing that happened that they were allowed to stay open for a little bit longer. But then came August of 2021 and all the businesses were finally given the ultimatum and were told that they had to close by August 31st, 2021. So most of them closed in advance of that and went ahead and closed up shop. A lot of them are moving to other areas. There's some other developers that are bringing up land that's a little bit further away, but still nearby, where they're going to allow for some new shopping and dining type things. And a lot of these restaurants and different places will move there. Now, Goodings went out of business a while ago completely. So public supermarkets are popping up in these different shopping malls that are very close to Disney now. And it's kind of an interesting little mix of things that happens as they work through this. You know, Pirate's Cove is gone but they have another Pirate's Cove that's down near International Drive where the Orlando Eye is. So there's a little entertainment district down there where they put another Pirate's Cove. So I haven't been to that one, but I will have to check it out at some point. But it's kind of a sad day. It's sort of this thing where I remember this as being built up. Like I said, they 
bought the land in the early 1980s, but they started building it in 1988, around the time that I moved to Orlando. And I was a frequent visitor to that area. I was there a lot. I went to pretty much every restaurant there over time and really had a really nice time there. I have fond memories of being there at this Disney location that wasn't Disney, right? It was, it was owned by Disney, but it wasn't really Disney. It was sort of a strange mix of things and it was really cool and had this sort of weird feel to it because of that. But it was really neat and it kind of fit in if you went over to the uh, Lake Buena Vista marketplace that existed it kind of fit in with the theming of that. It sort of felt like an extension of it. And because it was all Disney, it really did feel like it was part of it. So I wanted to pay homage to this area that, well, is now long gone, but is not forgotten, at least by me. And if you want to watch a little video where I went around there back in 2018, when they first announced that they were going to be closing shortly, I'll put a link to it in my show notes page. I did a, uh, one of my Lost and Found series specifically about that. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation right at the start of everything that's new one little spark lights up for you one last thing for you before i let you go i know i've hit you with some heavier topics if you will on the one little spark segment so on today's podcast i just wanted to remind you to be a good person to do something good find a volunteer activity now that we can start getting back out and doing things again Find a volunteer activity. Find something good you can do in your community and go and do it. You go out and do something good, whether you volunteer to serve food for people or package something up or just donate or go and do some good in your community in this time of giving thanks. Give thanks for the things that you have that maybe people are less fortunate and don't have. And that's it. That's all I wanted to say. So that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 